the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Welcome to TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, November 5th, 2021, coming to you from beautiful Madison, Wisconsin. Yes, indeed. The um, One of the things that's a little less beautiful, though, is the uh, COVID epidemic, uh, pandemic, pardon me. The thing being that since late May... The amount of increase in people getting vaccinated dropped off sharply. It plateaued, shall we say. So, I mean, so since the vaccines were introduced through the end of April, there was a sharp upward uh, slope of people getting uh, vaccinated. Just a sharp climb. Phew, taken off, right? And then yeah, that was about it. Once you had about... 47% or so of the population vaccinated. Yeah. No, j j just to give you an idea. All right. So on January 13th, 2% of the population were vaccinated, right? Okay. So that's mid January. Go to mid May. All right. I'm just going to go May 13th just for the sake of it. You had 47.6% vaccinated. All right, so from 2.2 to 47.6, 45% jump, okay, in that time period. Now, again, that's January to May. So, you know, February, March, April, May, four months, okay? Four months, you had a 45% increase. Now, had we kept that up four months from May, June, July, August, September, by September 13th, we should have been at 90% of the population having been vaccinated. However, fast forward to September 13th, four months later, right? And what do we got? We've got 59% of the population vaccinated. Now, let me just review. 45% increase within the first four months there versus a 14 or 15% increase in the next four months. 
yeah, that's a plateau, ladies and gentlemen. And then um, since then, again, September 13th at about 59.8%. Let's just call it 60% just to be nice. Okay. So mid-September, 60%. And here we are, early November, a month and a half later, 62.8%. So a 3%, shall we say, rise. 3% in the amount of people vaccinated increased wise in a month and a half. You know, unless you had a really well lubricated uh, vehicle of sorts, like a sled that was really well, well waxed and ready to go. uh, You could not slide down a hill like that because that's not a hill that's essentially a flat plane you, you, you we're not moving we're not moving now the good news is that at 63 percent roughly of the population vaccinated while that's not the 70 to 80 percent we want to see to uh, perhaps finally get rid of covid it is having overall when you're talking about the United States, a decent effect on things like hospitalizations. Um, So just to give you an idea, mid-September, just 3% ago in vaccinations, we had a seven-day average of 94,000 people hospitalized with COVID-19. We're now down to 43,000 hospitalized as uh, as of this week here. So the fact is, is that, again, it's not zero, but the vaccination level is having a good effect overall. However, not everywhere. Um, And again, I just want to point out what the vaccination really helps with. It helps keep people out of the hospitals. And if they get hospitalized, it helps keep them out of the ICU. And hell, even if they get to the ICU, it helps keep them from dying. But the point is, the vaccinations help decrease the severity by far. And overall, they decrease the viral load in people, which helps keep it from spreading as much. But there are places that are having problems. Colorado is experiencing its worst coronavirus wave in a year. Its hospitals are now overwhelmed enough that they're allowed to actually turn away new patients because they have to an executive order signed this past Sunday by governor Jared Polis allowed hospitals to redirect incoming patients. Many medical facilities have reported being over 90% capacity with severe staffing shortages. COVID hospitalizations in Colorado have increased 14% in the last two weeks. The state's daily new cases have also increased by 14% in two weeks and recently reached their highest level since their peak in November 2020. Hospitals in Larimer County, where vaccine hesitancy is fueling a surge, are using 110% of their ICU beds. Now, how do you do that? Well, that means that you've used all the ICU beds you had to begin with, and you had to pull in beds from other departments to fill your ICU way beyond the normal levels of capacity. I mean, basically, patients are forced to double up in rooms, which is not good for COVID. 
Hospitals in the area are close to turning patients away to prioritize emergencies, according to Tom Gonzalez, the public health director for Larimer. So what happens is this. In Colorado, roughly 62% of the state is fully vaccinated, right? And, and, uh, and that's fully, not just the one shot, but fully vaccinated. Um, most hospitalized COVID patients, however, are unvaccinated. So again, the vaccination helps keep you out of the hospital. But there's so much, there's still so many who are unvaccinated that it's overwhelming the hospital system. This is the problem. Even when you have 62% of your state fully vaccinated, guess what that means? That means you have 38% of your state's population unvaccinated. Now, again, you're like, well, that's the minority, all this. Yeah, but you know what? If you're talking about um, a state whose population is 5.7 million, like Colorado's is, right? So let's just say um, 6 million for easy figuring, okay? 38% of that. Um, I'm going to do a little little on-the-fly calculation on the air, so pardon me for a minute. If you take 40% of that, basically speaking, you are looking at about two and a half million at least people who are unvaccinated. Now, if you think that Colorado's um, hospital systems are ready to handle two and a half million unvaccinated uh, COVID patients. <laughs> no. Uh, at University of Colorado Health, UC Health, one of the state's biggest health systems, 76% of patients hospitalized with COVID-19 are unvaccinated. Over 86% of COVID-19 patients who are in need of a ventilator and are in the ICU are unvaccinated. Now, masks in the state of Colorado are optional. Restaurants are running at pretty much full capacity. And, you know, um, the governor is reluctant to revive statewide restrictions because of the large outcry about my freedoms. Your freedoms are landing you in the hospital so much that the hospitals have to turn away patients. And we're not just talking about turning away COVID patients. We're talking about the hospitals having to turn away patients who have broken arms, patients who have other problems, patients who need a hospital, but can't because your freedoms are keeping them from the medical care they need because you won't wear a damn mask because you won't get vaccinated. Is it going to keep you from getting sick? Maybe, maybe not, but it'll keep you out of the hospital and it'll make sure that little Johnny, when the inevitable accident happens, can get his injury treated at the local hospital. Does that affect you directly? No, but think for some, for just one moment about somebody else. Will you, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, get the shot. It's not asking too much. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine 
that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole? You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. Known person of Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. What's the Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me. Stay the way a man just planned this day. You let 
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, you might not have known it because not much noise was made about it, being an off-off year, if you will. But uh, this past week, this just the last Tuesday here, um, the uh, 2nd of November, was an election day. Now, um, here in Madison, there wasn't too much going on with that, but... uh, it, there were there were things to be voted on, but uh, most notably here in Wisconsin, um, there was a Milwaukee area school board race and um, the incumbents there defeated a recall effort by conservative candidates who had opposed teaching critical race theory, you know, racial equity and diversity, basically. And so um, that is a nice victory at the very least in actually teaching history in the schools. Um, elsewhere in the, uh, in the Great Lakes, uh, Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan won a third term, which are saying that the people of Detroit seem to approve of his job so far of trying to make sure the city, you know, stays out of bankruptcy and restores, you know, basic things like streetlights, <laughs> you know, so apparently they're happy with that. But most of the news around the country Not very good if you're on my end of thinking when it comes to politics. Now, there's a reason for this. There's a very strong reason for this. Several, actually. Um, So bear with me while I spell it out. Um, When you have a fairly strong turnout in a big election, and let let me just define some terms here. So the big elections. Those are always the presidential ones, right? Every four years, those are the big ones. Almost everybody turns out who's going to turn out, I should say. Um, almost everybody who turns out to vote at all, ever, will turn out for a presidential election. Huge, right? Um, then you have the uh, secondary, smaller elections as they're considered. And this is not, by the way, the way I feel about them. I feel all elections are dastardly important. But here's the deal. Um, secondary elections are the ones where you get mm, maybe, you know, half to two thirds of a, of a big uh, election turnout. And those are um, the every two year elections that involve Congress. Um, where they're not on presidential elections, uh, and also the primary elections in the presidential years um, also tend to be, like I said, secondary. Then you get the tertiary elections, the one where it's like, well, you know, people turn out if they're really interested. Those are the primary elections on non-presidential years. And um, and local, you know, school board elections, generally that kind of thing. And then you get this year. This year is the year after a major, 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 major political year called 2020. And anytime you have a presidential election year, the next year will always be probably some of the lowest turnout you will ever find in general. Now, again, I'm just going by generalities, okay? But I'm just letting you know what happens is um, 
people get exhausted. People get politically exhausted. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to deal with it. They, they sure as hell don't want to campaign. They're done giving money to campaigns for now. They got to they gotta go tend to their own lives. They, they spent too much on ex-candidate last year, right? They're, or or ex-cause last year. They, they've got to go about their own lives for at least a little bit. Leave, can you leave politics alone for just a year, please? That's generally the attitude, right? And so, first of all, 2021 elections were in that atmosphere. The, oh my God, politics again. Please, can you just go away? To start with. Secondly, there is an issue in American politics where the lower the voter turnout, the more conservative the vote shifts. Now, there's a reason for this, and I'm, it's, it's actually not that hard to explain. The people who need the most motivation to turn out and put their voice out there are the ones who trust authority the least. Yeah, I, I know it seems counterintuitive, but bear with me. I'll prove it. If you are an authoritarian, if you believe that the rule of authority is a good thing, and if you believe that your way is the right way, and on top of that, you believe that others should be forced to believe the same thing you do, you know, you, you don't mind the idea of, of marching in lockstep with others. You don't mind it, it, the, the whole, again, the whole authoritarian mindset, the whole daddy knows best idea, right? That mindset goes out and votes almost every time. They're very disciplined about it. They don't get discouraged about it nearly as easily. Because if you're on the other end of things, if you believe that everybody has a right to their own opinion, if you believe that overall people are good and don't necessarily need to be reined in constantly, if you believe that, you know, government isn't really that trustworthy, if you believe all of these things, then it takes a good bit to prod you to vote because A, you believe overall people will uh, people are good anyway. So even if you don't participate, eventually the good will come out. That's, in my opinion, a bit naive. But hey, the point is this: if you believe that, I mean, I, I'm I'm on that end of things, but I also know better in some ways. The point is, if you believe that overall good will come out in the end, it's not a motivation to go out and vote and make sure, gosh dang it, that the right thing happens, right? Secondly, if you don't trust the government, then you need to really be motivated to go and trust it to count your vote, right? If you don't trust in authority, then you know that authority will do what it, what it needs to maintain power, etc. And so the idea of going out and uh, participating in the system of voting just seems silly, all right? And then thirdly, there's just sheer discouragement. If you 
believe in helping people and the common good. And if you believe that um, the wealthy don't do their part and all of this stuff, and you have seen what has happened since the last time you rallied, which was just a year ago, to try and make sure that we didn't get uh, snuffed under the weight of an authoritarian regime. And you've seen what's happened since, which has been almost nothing that actually helps people. It can be very discouraging to then say, muster up the energy to say, okay, let's go out and vote this year. Okay, guys, come on. Yeah, I know that didn't really work out well last year, but let's let's go do it again. Let's go um, rally the troops. Let's go make sure that we don't lose ground, all that stuff, right? Very discouraging. Meanwhile, if you're on the other side, you're encouraged by what you've seen. Oh, wow. You know, that that huge blue wave that uh, that um, had Biden winning more votes than any other president ever in any election, including, of course, Trump. Um, and all that, that, that really didn't produce much. You know, the, the fact that we were able to turn Congress over to democratic control, <laughs> barely, and, and, or the, and the, you know, all that, that didn't do much, right? It can be very discouraging. So combine the fact that this is the most off of the off years in general. And the fact that the political landscape has been very discouraging anywhere from center to left. And you have the perfect storm for most of the country to find itself facing tremendous redshifts in voting patterns. For example, in Virginia, the Republican candidate for governor won. Glenn Youngkin won the Virginia governor's race. Now, you know, Youngkin will say, oh, well, it's just because I was on the correct issue of, of you know, uh, critical race theory and, and that we, were, we wanted to make sure that, uh, that we had all of Trump's values being, being greatly uh, at the forefront of our movement and blah, 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 whatever. It, that really doesn't have much to do with it. Democratic Governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, the incumbent, um, is a darling of the center Democrats, if you will. I mean, he was a, he was a big uh, fixture with President Barack Obama. Um, he was a big backer of Hillary Clinton in 2016. You know, he's he's a friend of Joe Biden's uh, administration for sure, and. As such, he was the perfect symbol to encourage virtually no enthusiasm at all from those who tend to vote Democratic in these elections. Meanwhile, of course, Glenn Youngkin made himself the symbol of everything that Trump had ever campaigned on, essentially, and as such was able to tap into the frustrated voters who to this day still maintain that Trump was cheated out of the election. So what happened? Youngkin won. Now, basically, the way this works, of course, is that 
this happens, right? And then all of a sudden in Congress, those who are conservative go, wow, you know, it was a rough night for anybody who was even remotely to the left. We need to skew to the right or we're going to lose our seats. No, you fools. Um, Congress, if there is a single villain to be pointed to, if there is a single cause that can be blamed, and there's multiple, of course, I went over them just now, but if there's truly a single cause that can be blamed for the lack of voter turnout for Democratic candidates and causes this week for the elections. It is you, Democratic Congress. It is you, Kirsten Cinema. It is you, Joe Manchin. It is you, Nancy Pelosi, who's repeatedly tried to split the infrastructure bill from the much larger spending bill that needs to happen in order to have any kind of progress made on climate change, really, in order to have any kind of progress made on um, inequality, not only racially, but financially in this country. And throughout the year, we've watched. Oh, we've watched. Don't you think we weren't watching just because we were sick of electoral politics? We have watched as Pelosi and Cinema and Manchin repeatedly have managed to get in the way of progress. We have watched as the corporate end of the Democratic Party has done everything they can to walk away or run away from the more progressive promises made last year. We have watched as Joe Biden has systematically each and every turn decided he's not going to cancel student debt. We have watched every single day as these things unfold. We've watched Bernie Sanders pull some of the most brilliant congressional maneuvers we've ever seen towards helping make this country better. And we've seen it wasted so far. Because West Virginia doesn't know what the hell a political left is when they elect Joe Manchin as a Democrat. <laughs> we, we have seen it wasted because Arizona elected a traitor like Kirsten Cinema, who was a Green Party member. Not less than 20 years ago, less than two decades ago, a Green Party member became a Democrat, still preaching throughout the campaign trail in, as she gained in power, still preaching so many progressive things as a Democrat. Only now, only now, once she's actually a senator, to completely turn it around and gleefully, gleefully rub it in the faces of those who trusted her to do the right thing by the American people 
gleefully rub it in their faces that she's going to serve corporate masters and screw everybody else. So yeah, we watched all that. And people are surprised that your Terry McAuliffe's lost. People are surprised that the New York, sorry, the New Jersey governor race, which showed the Democratic candidate having a nice solid lead, wound up being too close to call on election night this year. People were surprised by all that. No. Here's the true answer. They're not surprised. This is a cynical attempt by those who are corporate puppets. And specifically by their corporate puppet masters to paint this as a win for conservatism. No. There's different factors here. It's not that tons of conservatives poured out into the streets to vote. This was an off, off, off election year. There weren't tons of anybody pouring out to vote anywhere for anything. It's that so many of us who put so much energy into politics last year saw nothing happen. That. No matter how activist you were, you just couldn't find enough of your friends to go out there with you this year to actually make a dent against the conservative, corporate, mega rich overlord wing of the political end of things. And so we have election nights like we have this year. Now, I will tell you that the only cure for this is to make sure in 2022, next year, that we vote as strongly as we can to make sure that corporate puppets in both parties do not win. That we make sure that wherever possible, we primary the living hell out of people who have sensibilities like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, or any Republican. Keep them the hell away from the reins of power. Do I have a lot of hope that's going to happen? Here's the problem. Historically speaking, the, um, the second year after a large blue wave, if you will, happens at the presidential election is usually not good for continuing it. Typically, that's what happens. But... Things are a little atypical right now. And we actually may find the energy to do a strong pushback after the lambasting we got this year on this off, off, off election year. I certainly hope so. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, you may remember, if you happen to see the 1993 movie uh, described by a younger friend of mine as a classic, which made me shudder, um, Jurassic Park, you may remember that one of the key problems they were facing with Jurassic Park was that despite the um, geneticists' assurances that the dinosaurs could not reproduce on their own because they were all female, the dinosaurs started uh, experiencing uh, parthenogenesis, also known as quote-unquote virgin birth, wherein um, basically eggs are laid, fertilized cellularly without sperm involved. So basically, it's a type of asexual reproduction where the female's egg can develop an embryo within it without having been fertilized by a male. Now, this was explained in Jurassic Park by the inclusion of frog genes that uh, from Africa that were known to do this sometimes. And some lizards also do it, and then swell sharks are known to. But interestingly enough, that's about it. Scientists are not have not been known or had not known, I should say, of too many other creatures to do it until recently when it was found that California condors are capable of reproducing this way. The California condors population stooped dangerously low to just 22 individual condors in the 1980s. I mean, virtually extinct. In a race to save the critically endangered species, scientists captured the remaining 22 condors and began a captive breeding program that's still running. With such a small genetic pool and a very fragile population, their breeding has to be meticulously planned and documented. Well, because of this, they were able to capture this happening. When scientists at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance were reviewing the bird's genetic data, they found two male chicks, known as, in in their notes, SB260 and SB517, didn't have genetic contribution from any males in the program. So they published their findings uh, this week in Journal of Heredity. Uh, Co-author Oliver Ryder, a geneticist at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, said in the press release, this is truly an amazing discovery. We were not exactly looking for evidence of parthenogenesis. It just hit us in the face. We only confirmed it because of the normal genetic studies we do uh, to prove parentage. Both condor chicks died before reaching sexual maturity. But other parthenotes, like domesticated turkeys, uh, pigeons, and chickens, usually die before hatching. SB260 only lived for two years before dying in 2003 in the wild, likely from malnourishment. SB517 was unusually small and remained in captivity until he died of a, a foot infection, nearly eight years old in 2017. Damien Chapman, the biologist at Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium, told The Atlantic that they certainly weren't, shall we say, shining specimens of the condor. But the fact is, this was able to happen. Now, California condors can live to be about 60 years old. Uh, yeah, 60. And um, Ryder says parthenogenesis itself could have led to the parthenote's early demise. I mean, you know, again, when you don't have... Um, genetic uh variety shall we say uh, you you can lead to many uh, many kinds of uh, physical defects in the creatures that grow from that lack of diversity um 
The young birds may have developed genetic mutations that caused underlying problems since they didn't have that diversity. You know, that's added from the DNA of another parent. Parthenogenesis, by the way, is a rare occurrence, but some evidence suggests that females capable of parthenogenesis will reproduce in this way when there aren't any mates around, which can happen when you're down to 22 members of a population for the entire species. Scientists suspect that's what pushed the critically endangered small-toothed sawfish to parthenogenesis in the wild. For that reason, it's more common for females in captivity to reproduce asexually if they don't have, you know, mates in their enclosure. But in a puzzling twist to this theory, the female California condors who laid these two eggs were living with males. They mated with their partners before and after the parthenotes were born, leaving the team to wonder, well, then why would these birds reproduce asexually? The researchers don't have an answer yet, but they're working on it. Uh, writers uh, reported to um, Gizmodo, we only now have the genetic tools to look at this in detail. Previously, parthenogenesis was really identified by seeing females who weren't housed with males having offspring. But now we know the condor can have offspring while being housed with males. And it, it, it winds up having us ask, is there more or is this going on more often than we know? Well, Wired reports that it probably is. The team caught these two parthenotes while reviewing the genetic data, but, you know, there could be more. Because these births happened twice at separate times with different females, it could then be a recurring oddity. Um, Writer further is told Gizmodo, in their lifetimes, they weren't even recognized to be parthenotes. We're definitely keeping our eyes out anytime we get a batch of blood samples for testing now. He hopes some parthenotes born in the past slipped past the team and grew to be healthy adults, which could benefit the species in the future. Because for a species, you know, so imperiled as the condor, now with a population of about 500, every new egg, you know, counts. So, yeah, um, apparently parthenogenesis, not just for amphibians and reptiles anymore. Now we found birds for the first time actually doing it and surviving into adulthood. Moving on in the world of science news. This past week, it was reported a brain implant. A brain implant has given a blind woman artificial vision in a scientific first. A uh, visual prosthesis implanted directly into the brain has allowed a blind woman to perceive two-dimensional shapes and letters for the first time in 16 years. The U.S. researchers behind this phenomenal advance in optical prostheses have recently published the results of their experiments, presenting findings that could help revolutionize the way we help those without sight see again. At age 42, Berna Gomez developed toxic optic neuropathy, a, a, a terrible medical condition that rapidly destroyed the optic nerves connecting her eyes to her brain. In just a few days from contracting it, the you know faces of Gomez's two children and her husband had faded into darkness, and her career as a science teacher had essentially come to an end. Then in 2018, at age 57, well, Gomez decided to volunteer to be the very first person to have a tiny electrode with a hundred microneedles implanted into the visual region of her brain. It's a pretty brave decision. The prototype would be no larger than a penny, roughly four millimeters by four millimeters, and it would be taken out again 
after six months. Just temporary. Unlike retinal implants, though, which are being explored as a means of artificially using light to stimulate the nerves leaving the retina, this particular device, known as the Moran uh, cortivus prosthesis, bypasses the eye entirely. Okay, so when the eyes, if the eye is destroyed, then this would work separate from that. Um, it, uh, it just completely goes past that in the optic nerve. It goes straight to the source of visual perception in the brain. After undergoing neurosurgery to implant the device, um, Gomez spent the next six months going to the lab there in Spain every day for four hours to undergo tests and training with the new prosthesis. The first two months were largely spent getting Gomez to differentiate between the spontaneous pinpricks of light she still occasionally will see in her mind and the spots of light that were induced by direct stimulation of her prosthesis, right? Once she could do that, researchers could start presenting her with actual visual challenges. When an electrode in her prosthesis was stimulated, Gomez reported seeing, if you will, a prick of light known as a phosphine. Depending on the strength of the stimulation, the spot of light could be brighter or more faded, a white color or more of a sepia tone. Sepia being, in case you're not familiar, kind of a dull brown. When more than two electrodes were simultaneously stimulated, Gomez found it easier to perceive the spots of light. Some stimulation patterns looked like closely spaced dots, while others were more like horizontal lines. <laughs> Gomez, upon glimpsing a white line in her brain in 2018, exclaimed, I, I can see something. Pretty exciting. If you've been blind for years. Now, vertical lines, vertical lines, that is, were the hardest for researchers to induce. But by the end of training, Gomez was able to correctly discriminate between horizontal and vertical patterns with an accuracy of 100%. The authors write in their paper, furthermore, the subject reported that the preset the percepts had more elongated shapes when we increase the distance between the stimulating electrodes. This suggests that the phosphine's size and appearance is not only a function of the number of electrodes being stimulated, but also of their spatial distribution. Given these promising results, the very last month of the experiment was used to investigate whether Gomez could see letters with her prosthesis. When up to 16 electrodes were simultaneously stimulated in different patterns, Gomez could reliably identify some letters like the letter I, L, C, V, and O. She could even differentiate between an uppercase O and a lowercase O. The patterns of stimulation needed for the rest of the alphabet are still unknown, but the, the findings suggest the way we stimulate neurons with electrodes in the brain can create two-dimensional images. The last part of the experiment involved Gomez wearing special glasses that were embedded with a miniature video camera. This camera scanned objects in front of her and then stimulated different combinations of electrodes in her brain via the prosthesis, thereby creating simple visual images of what was right in front of her. The glasses ultimately allowed Gomez to discriminate between the contrasting borders of black and white bars on cardboard, for example. She could even find the location of a large white square on either the left or the right half of a computer screen. The more she practiced, the faster she got. The results are encouraging, but they only exist 
right now for a single subject over the course of six months. Before this prototype becomes available for clinical use, it will need to be tested among many more patients for much longer periods of time. Other studies have implanted the same microelectrode arrays, known as Utah electrode arrays, by the way, into other parts of the brain to help control artificial limbs. So we know they're safe, at least in the short term, but it's still early uh, you know, in the days for the tech here, which risks a steady drop in functionality over just a few months of operation. While engineers beef up the reliability of the devices, we still need to know exactly how to program the software that interprets the visual input so it works for the brain. Uh, last year, researchers at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston inserted a similar device into a deeper part of the visual cortex. Among five study participants, three of whom were, you know, had sight and two of whom were blind, the team found the device helped blind people trace the shapes of simple letters like W, S, and Z. In Gomez's case, there's no evidence of the device triggering neural death, epileptic seizures, or other negative side effects, thankfully. And, and, it suggests microstimulation can be safely used to restore functional vision, even among those who have suffered irreversible damage to their retinas or optic nerves. Um, Bioengineer Richard Norman from the University of Utah said, uh, one goal of this research is to give a blind person more mobility. It could allow them to identify a person or doorways or, or cars easily. It could increase independence and safety. That's what we're working toward. Right now, it seems only a very rudimentary form of sight can be returned with visual prostheses. Um, but you know, the more we study the brain and these devices among blind and sighted people, the better we will get at figuring out how certain patterns of stimulation can reproduce more complex visual images. Uh, it's quite possible that one day other patients in the future will be able to trace the whole alphabet with this prosthesis because of what Gomez did in her pioneering work here. Four more patients are already lined up to try out the device. In a statement a few years ago, Gomez said, I know I am blind and that I will always be blind, but I felt like I could do something to help people in the future. And I still feel that way. By the way, Gomez's name is listed as a co-author on the paper because of all of her insight and hard work, which was published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. That's called not letting one's obstacles get in the way of making a productive contribution to society. For that, Gomez is a hero of mine. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler today. And uh, we'll be back, of course, next week. And uh, you can always, of course, hear the repeat on Mondays at noon here in WSUM or catch things at TMI, TMI, TMI.com. But you know what? If you want to see the world for how it is, the first thing you got to do is close your eyes. Find a center within yourself. Breathe deep and let it out. Remember what matters to you. Then you'll be ready to see the world for how it is and not how people are trying to fool you into thinking about it. And all you'll have to do at that point is simply... Open!